Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. As always, I'll be discussing this month's papers, that is January, with uh, our senior editor, Rachel Agbeko. Welcome, Rachel. How's your last month been? Hi, Nick. My last month was the current month, <laughs> as in December. <laughs> it's been snot season. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> How about yourself? Yes, similar, I guess. Uh, uh, a bit of academic stuff thrown in, but yeah, the acute side has been um, a lot of that sort of stuff. This is a good issue, isn't it? Um, and as always, um, a lot that caught the eye and cho choosing the uh, the keynote papers, if you like, was unusually difficult. But I think I think we made a good choice. Um, so what do you what do you think links the the papers we've actually chosen, Rachel? Well, there's there's always a theme. Um, sometimes it takes a bit of lateral thinking, I suppose. But with these papers for uh, for atoms and discussing, I think it's, it's quite clear to me. I think it's all about timing, uh, including challenging the notion that early is not always better. I think that sums it up for me. Nice way of summarising it. I like that. I like that. Well, so... Um... In no particular order, let's let's look at these five papers then. So we'll start with um, the diagnostic value of rapid tests for malaria amongst febrile neonates in a tertiary hospital in northeastern Nigeria. So a prospective cross-sectional study by Dr. Yasangra Rabo and the Niji and colleagues at the Federal Teaching Hospital, Gombe, Gombe State, Nigeria. The title alludes to rapid and therefore early diagnosis of neonatal malaria. So why is this important? Well, it's very important because neonatal malaria has a high mortality rate. Uh, it's closely associated uh, or predictive of uh, low birth weight, intrauterine growth restriction, smallness for gestational age, and of course, a uh, an early diagnosis in febrile infants allows for more specific treatment um, rather than undifferentiated sepsis approach, um, which is so widely used. We'll come back to that later on in the podcast. So not digressing for a second, the gold standard to diagnose malaria parasitemia is by microscopy. But this modality is not universally available due to lack of staff uh, or laboratories. An alternative would be a straightforward point-of-care test. And these do exist, but so far haven't been rigorously tested in the field, specifically not in this setting, the peripartum one. These rapid diagnostic tests, RDTs for short for malaria, are immune chromatographic assays, which can detect malaria antigens in the blood by way of a membrane containing specific anti-malarial antibodies. So what did the authors set out to do here, Rachel? First, I'd like to say that I very much like this uh, this uh, study. Study Nick, I'll, I'll say a bit about the background. So we're set in a in a thirty two bedded special care baby unit or SCABU at the Federal Teaching Hospital, Gombe, Nigeria. So I think that's important to note in terms of the setting. And this unit looks after both inborn and outborn babies, and they have about sixty admissions each month, so roughly two a day. Now, what they did uh, in trying to see whether 
this point of care test um, was helpful in diagnosing neonatal malaria is they identified babies with fever uh, and that was defined according to the WHO guideline of 37.5 and above um, to uh, be part of a cohort where the question was, does this RDT kit measure up up to a formal parasitological laboratory test for parasitemia? In this cohort of 130 babies, unfortunately, the kit didn't do very well as it didn't identify any of the 78, so that's nearly 60% of babies uh, with uh, parasitemia uh, as seen by the formal test. And, and I was just thinking, so where does that, that leave us? Where do we go from here? Um, the authors discussed some potential reasons why the test may have failed to yield the answer. I think we probably just need better tests. So it's back to the drawing board because I do think the premise still is very valid that here early detection of neonatal malaria is worthwhile pursuing. Would you agree with that? Totally. This isn't one to let go. It just there's, um, it comes down to a sensitivity issue. For some reason, the, the rapid diagnostic tests don't perform as well in neonates as as opposed to in older children, where we know they're pretty good. Yeah. I suspect there are immunological reasons behind this, but it's it's one to pursue r- rather than um, than let go. Yeah. The next paper we'll discuss has a similar focus, although in a different setting. External validation of a multivariable prediction model for identification of pneumonia and other serious bacterial infections in febrile immunocompromised children, led by Professor Marike Emmons in Newcastle upon Tyne, UK, and others on behalf of the PERFORM consortium, is an embedded study in the wider platform personalised risk assessment in febrile illness to optimise real-life management across the European Union. So the study aimed to help us differentiate between serious bacterial infections from other causes of fever in a population that's more at risk to be severely unwell or die of bacterial infections, that is immunocompromised children. Because we're so concerned with serious sequelae in this population, so children during their cancer treatment or transplantation or treatment with immune suppressive drugs, we err on the side of caution and we'll have a low threshold, if any, to start broad spectrum antibiotics. Many times this won't have been necessary as the fever will have been secondary to a simple viral illness. Of course, in immunocompromised children, a viral illness may not necessarily be simple. We need to be concerned about fungal infections and there may be non-infectious reasons for the fever. But that aside. So tools to differentiate serious bacterial infection from other causes will be helpful. Indeed, especially though we could figure out early on if we stay with a the theme. Do you want to take over the story, mm. Rachel? Yes, of course. So, so in terms of this early on diagnosis, so you could one there's a there's a model called Fever Kids, which is a is a tool. It's a multivariate clinical prediction model, and it's intended to predict the risk of bacterial pneumonia and other serious bacterial infections or SBIs versus no SBI at presentation so early. 
It was developed and validated in several populations in the UK and the Netherlands, but immune-compromised children were excluded. Now, given what Nick has just said, um, you can see that it's actually quite important to study this tool uh, in this population. And that's what this study did. Just briefly, uh, the tool comprises of about 11 predictor variables uh, and they're all available at the time of presentation. So age, sex, temperature, duration of fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, ill appearance, chest wall retractions, prolonged capital refill timers in more than three seconds, oxygen saturations less than 94% and a CRP. Now, what did they find in this prospective international multi-centre observational study of nearly 600 episodes? So that's quite a large number of children who are immune compromised. Um, good news, bad news maybe. The tool worked fairly well for predicting bacterial pneumonia uh, with an uh, area under the curve of 0.83, but less well for other serious bacterial infections uh, where it was 0.63. And here I might also say that, which is interesting and a bit surprising to me, that it didn't perform any better uh, by adding in more specific data pertinent to immune-compromised children, such as neutropenia or neurological signs or non-blanching rash. And what I'd say last, you can sort of rule in, rule out, uh, in terms of the ruling out of severe bacterial infection, uh, if you get a low th risk threshold of less than 10%, it ruled out uh, other serious bacterial infections with a sensitivity of 0.92. And that might be good enough to go with, I think. As an aside again, doing a few asides here, um, in the uh, Spotlight podcast, uh, Bob Phillips and I discuss along similar lines, the notion that you don't always need to do an X-ray or perform a urine test in immune-compromised children. Uh, and I think this paper adds to the body of work that maybe fine-tunes our approach to this vulnerable group. Yeah, so let's stay with the concept of early in the next paper, association of maternal risk factors with infant maltreatment, an administrative data uh, study by first author Jennifer Smith at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, lead author Professor Katie Harron at UCL London in the UK and co-authors. So child maltreatment, sadly, remains an issue across societies, and I don't think anyone would contend that early identification of risks is a worthwhile endeavour. Of course, one needs to bear in mind the possibility of risk assessing with too many false positives, which in itself may lead to potentially devastating familial disruption. So what was your take on this paper, Rachel? Well, well, as you say, so sadly, we still need to think about child um, maltreatment. And so if we stay in Ontario, my understanding is that about a third of adults um, have reported maltreatment as a, as a child. Now, many of the factors that are associated with um, early childhood uh, maltreatment are part of the so-called social determinants of health. And... In trying to identify more vulnerable families in Ontario, Canada, there already exists a 
public health programme with health visiting that takes into account already commonly used criteria. And I'll, I'll just name them here. So there's young maternal age. And we come back to what is young maternal adversity, uh, homelessness, substance abuse, intimate partner violence, newcomer status and mental health concerns. And what this study aimed to do was to evaluate the risk of, mal, of child maltreatment in, in, the, in the population. Uh, and the authors performed a retrospective cohort study using data linkage between health administrative and demographic databases. And the cohort was followed up uh, until one year of age or death. Now, in this cohort of nearly a million babies born between 2005 and 2017, there were 434 where maltreatment was identified. Now, out of a million babies, that doesn't seem much, 0.04%, but that is still 434 too many. And, and, and as I earlier said, that um, social determinants of health are implicated in child maltreatment, uh, and these are present before birth or could be present before birth. Uh, and uh, the authors paid attention to those, but what this study now adds is that um, infants born to mothers, say lower than 22 years old, were five and a half times more likely to experience maltreatment than those born to mothers who were older. Although there was still an increased risk up to 28 years. So that to me says that we need to revisit our notions of young age um, rather than thinking about adolescents, uh, and it, it allows it will allow us to better look after and support these families um, if we get get this uh, this right in terms of risk factors, rather than limit ourselves to preconceived notions of uh, of age, for instance. Now, last. Nick, we, we, we mentioned a, a paper and the accompanying editorial that probably states that early is not necessarily better. What caught your attention? Yeah, you couldn't have put that better. So um, this is a an important paper, and I say that unreservedly. Potential benefits of prenatal diagnosis of transposition of the great arteries in Australia are outweighed by the adverse effects of early delivery, likely causation and potential solutions by Siva Namachivayam and co-authors at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, Australia, and the accompanying editorial by Victoria Jowett at Great Ormond Street. This paper sought to uh, test the premise that knowing antenatally about a cardiac diagnosis inevitably uh, results in a better outcome. And that's been it's standard practice for several years with the advent some 20, 30 years ago, I guess, of detailed uh, antenatal scanning and an improvement in techniques with respect to detail and sensitivity of the tool in general to pick up congenital heart disease at the intrauterine stage. And what standard practice has been is to ensure that the delivery, uh, particularly if there's a chance that it might be duct dependent, at a tertiary cardiology centre. 
that obviously uh, means some logistical planning, early transfer of women who might be about to deliver. And in general, the practice has been to deliver early after induction or planned cesarean section. So this has been the standard practice for years. But this group of authors, um, bravely, I think, uh, chose to test this uh, and look at the relationship in their group in Victoria State, Australia, um, between knowledge a priori of uh, transposition in the group where it was known and compared to the group where the diagnosis was not known. And in short, they, they found that in terms of intervention and recovery time, not mortality, but uh, PICU time, that the not known group fared better. It seemed that this was largely mediated by the extra prematurity which a knowledge of the diagnosis entails and that they speculate that this is the key factor here. So in short, antenatal diagnosis was associated with longer ventilation time, PICU and hospital stay and mediation suggested that the pathway ran through gestational age. So while even in a study so robust, there might be residual confounding and the findings might not be necessarily generalizable to findings outside the state, Australia, or even to other forms of congenital heart disease, this is a really provocative paper that might take us a step further to uh, thinking about the logistics um, of the whole process. And I think that's a fitting paper on which to end. Have you got any more thoughts on this one, Rachel? Brave, I'd say, uh, the authors to challenge uh, such a such a paradigm is uh, is brave, and I and I think uh, you will make the point that we don't necessarily need to jump to a change in our um, in our practice, uh, but I do think. It, it gives us pause to sort of try and better understand how we do the practice that we do uh, uh, and where we might have adverse unintended effects uh, by trying to get there in early. Yeah, Com completely agree. Well, th that was our selection. It's been great discussing them. They're obviously a lot of other papers um, all exciting in the issue all available of course on the site um, we hope you very much that you enjoy the issue and enjoyed this discussion um, thank you so much Rachel as always I hope you get a break sometime over the holiday period it's it's goodbye for me for now bye for me thanks see you next time everyone thank you <laughs>